Have you ever lost something that was very precious to you? Uh, some things are precious because of their function. You know what I mean? If you, if you lose your wallet or your car keys or your phone, things we, we tend to depend on day by day, there's a certain level of panic that sinks in. What am I going to do? Other things are less functional and more sentimental, like losing a wedding ring or a photograph or a keepsake. Perhaps you've experienced both, but we all know that sinking feeling that comes when we, we lose something valuable to us. And when we recover that item, or we hear someone on the other side of the house say, found it, isn't that a great feeling? There's a huge sense of relief. And I don't know about you, but in those moments, having found what was lost, I gain a much deeper appreciation for that thing. I give a lot more care and attention to it than I did before. I had perhaps taken it for granted, but no longer because I felt, I felt like I had lost it, like I may not see it again. And now having received it back, uh, the, the value uh, increases. My esteem for that thing increases. We all know that feeling. Well, beginning today and for the next few weeks, we're going to look at three parables of Jesus, two today, and then uh, a rather long parable, his longest parable next week. Um, but they all carry this very same theme, something or someone that was lost, but then is found. And I'll just say, these two parables that we're going to look at today, they're very easy to take for granted. Because if you grew up around church, these are probably familiar to you, very familiar. But this is, this is something I always try to remind myself of. Knowing a Bible story or a Bible fact is not the same thing as being transformed by it. Knowing something from the Bible is not the same as being changed by what we know. Jesus, y'all, Jesus is not in the business of merely educating us. Jesus is never concerned with education only, information only. Jesus' goal is to bring us into a transforming relationship with God. And that should always be our desire, always our prayer when we come into His Word. Not just that we would know it. Or I already know this, and so I'm not going to pay close attention. No, but Lord, change me. Change my heart. Change my worldview. Change my, my uh, way of being. My, my devotional life. Change me in light of what your Word says. What a great prayer for us as we look at Luke chapter 15 today. Uh, Luke 15, again, a familiar grouping of parables here, uh, but so uh, such potential to transform if we'll ask God to, to produce that in our hearts. Pay a co close attention with me to the context. At the very beginning of Luke 15, what he tells us in the first two verses, this gives us a foundation that is necessary for our understanding. And, and really, it'll be a foundation for the next couple of weeks for us. Luke 15, verse 1. Now, all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near Jesus to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, if you were with us last week, we talked about the significance of dinners and social gatherings. 
in the time of Jesus, to eat with someone was to unite yourself to that person, to their status, their reputation. So if you wanted to be an honorable person, you had to be very careful who you spent your time with, who you shared the dinner table with, because the entire social fabric depended on it. And so right off the bat, we see Jesus Jesus breaking the first rule of conduct. (laughs) He's receiving, welcoming, and even dining with tax collectors and sinners. These are the worst of the worst in a moral, honorable society. And in fact, that's, that's what the Pharisees and the scribes, they just can't fathom. This man who claims to be from God is welcoming sinners and eating with them. The implication being, there's no way Jesus could have come from God. There's no way he's the real thing. Because God judges sinners. God condemns sinners. He would never welcome them in. Now, let me make a quick point on this. Whenever I read these kinds of accounts in the Bible, I know who the bad guys are. The scribes and the Pharisees right? We all know they're the bad guys. And so I always say to myself, well, I can't believe how self-righteous and hypocritical these guys are. I would never be like that. I'm nothing like that. I never put myself in their shoes because I know they're the bad guys. I'm not the bad guy. I always want to paint myself as the hero or as the informed, wise, enlightened, faithful person. Whoever that is in the story, that's who I am, not the bad guys. And so when Jesus speaks back to the Pharisees here in a moment, I don't really hear him speaking to me. He's talking to someone else. And y'all, this is potentially a huge blind spot for all of us. Because the truth is, I am guilty of self righteousness and hypocrisy, much more than I'd like to admit. And Jesus' words, therefore, are not meant for other people, but somehow not for me. No, he is speaking into my heart right here. He's speaking into our hearts today about the nature of God and how God deals with sinners. This is not a story for somebody else. It's for you and me. Regardless of what side you fall on, the self-righteous or the lowly and sinful, this story is for us. It's meant to penetrate our And so Jesus welcomes and eats with sinners, but right here he turns his attention to the religious leaders, those who are within uh, range. They're, They're peeking in, perhaps they're even in the same room, grumbling, and Jesus is going to explain to them what he's up to. Why is he doing what he's doing? Look with me at Luke 15, verse 3. So he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me! For I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents 
than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. A shepherd has a hundred sheep. One becomes lost. Fairly simple setup. Probably not an uncommon occurrence in the ancient world. Y'all, here, here's what we should understand. Sheep are herd animals. They can't live on their own. They don't do well on their own. So when a sheep is separated from the flock, it, it doesn't find its way back like a, like a good dog might. No, it becomes disoriented and agitated. It loses its bearings. It flips out. And even if the shepherd searches and finds the sheep, the sheep will not follow him back to the flock. It must be picked up, its legs must be tied together, and then it must be carried back. In this case, hoisted over the man's shoulders and carried back to safety. Now, there's, there's a line of thinking that says, you've still got 99 sheep. Why spend the time and energy chasing after the one? Why risk the safety of the other sheep left in the open pasture? Why bother saving a sheep that cannot or will not keep up with the rest of the flock? You're wasting your time. Um, but you notice how Jesus presumes upon his audience here. He says, what man among you, if this happened to you, wouldn't risk all to find that lost sheep. And then having found it, you'd surely call all your friends and neighbors together to celebrate. You'd throw, a, you'd throw a party with a big meal. Now that may all seem like an overboard kind of response, but it wouldn't have been to the ancient Jews. Everyone in those small communities knew everyone else's business. There wasn't a whole lot of private life to be had. And so if a man loses a sheep, everybody would have known about it and everybody would have cared. And they would have gladly celebrated with him when he recovered it. And so up to this point, Jesus is simply affirming what anyone would have done. No one would have flippantly said, well, I've still got 99. What's the big deal? No, that one sheep would have been very precious to them. Anyone would have done this. Right? There's no disagreement here. If something precious is lost, you go seek it out. And then you'd celebrate finding it. There'd be a tremendous amount of relief and rejoicing. But here comes the shock. And this would have been a shock for both groups, the moral people as well as the sinners. This is shocking. Verse 7, Jesus says, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, I want you to hold on to that verse. Uh, we're going to come back around to it. It's the central verse. But let, let's look briefly at the next parable, the one that, that follows right after, because they make the same point. Look with me at verse 8. Jesus says, Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it. When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. Now, when Jesus speaks of a woman here, he probably has in mind 
a widow, which means uh, she was not wealthy to begin with. She had fallen on hard times in the first place. In fact, she has 10 silver coins. 10 silver coins. So when she loses one, I mean, we're talking about her life savings, basically. When she loses a coin, there's an even greater sense of urgency than even the shepherd had. He lost one of a hundred. She loses one of ten. Y'all, one lost coin to a widow or even a whole family, see, that would have been catastrophic to her. And so she urgently, she carefully searches for it. And then the same result, having found it, she throws a party. She compels her friends to rejoice with her over the lost coin which was now found. And then Jesus makes the same point all over again. Verse 10, he says, In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So let's put this all together here. Um, It should be clear, Jesus is not talking about sheep or coins. He's talking about people. People. And specifically, he's talking about sinners who are lost, meaning they are far from God. They have lived in a way that is, that is in denial and rebellion of God's law. They may be religious in some sense. Certainly, all, the, all of these people around Jesus would have believed in God, but they have strayed far from him. They have left God behind in one way or another. They have lived in unbelief. And sin. And here, y'all, we see three major truths. Three things that that come up in this parable and are, I, I think, very clear. Jesus makes them clear. First, we see how God values the lost. Then we see how God seeks the lost. And finally, we see God's joy over saving the lost. Let's look at those three briefly. How does God value the lost? Well, very differently than than we do. (laughs) Uh, Y'all, humans, we tend to assign value based on performance, potential, and productivity. My value depends on what I do, what I can offer, how much I achieve. Or in the context of Luke 15, our value depends on how moral and religious we are. That was both true in ancient Jewish society, but also in their perception of God. God values me according to how moral and religious I am. And so here is the assumption that would have been shared by the scribes and the Pharisees. These sinners, they had their chance to live right, to live for God. And they punted. They have forfeited the image of God that they were made in. They have forsaken God, and therefore they are unworthy of God's love. But when Jesus welcomes these folks in, without apology, without reservation, he welcomes them in and eats with them, Jesus is sending a very clear message. Lost does not mean worthless. Our sin does not destroy our value to God. And the reason is, God is the value giver. It's not up to you and me to earn our way 
to God to raise or lower His love for us based on our performance, as if we had that much control over God. No, if if you are valued by God, even at your very worst, that's because God's heart is not swayed by our worthiness. That's what the Scripture tells us. In Romans chapter 5, Paul says, God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God doesn't love us because we are lovable. And He will love us more or less based on what we do. No. God loves us because God is love. It's up to His heart to determine our value. And He values us supremely. Second, we see how God seeks out the lost. The shepherd leaves the 99 for the one. The woman turns her house upside down just to find the one coin. And again, the assumption among the Pharisees was, okay, if a sinner wants God to accept him, well, then he's got a lot of work to do. Let let him clean himself up and earn his way back. Then we'll see. But y'all, that's not at all what Jesus is saying. That couldn't be any further from the point that Jesus is making. Y'all, the shepherd seeks and finds the lost sheep. And then he hoists it over his own shoulders, rejoicing all the way. It's not a clean-up mission. It's a rescue mission. He doesn't go and flog the sheep and give him a stern talking to and tell him to do better next time. He saves him and brings him home. And y'all, this y'all, this is the reason Jesus took on flesh and came into the world. He said it himself. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. When I was in Central Asia last year, I heard this several times from the Muslim men we encountered. Super nice, hospitable people, by the way. But I continued to hear this over and again. We must do good works. We must live morally. We must obey Allah. Because only our good works can compensate for our sins. And when we die, we must pay for our sins before we can enter paradise. And so they didn't necessarily call it hell, but that was, the, that was the idea. There will be a period of torment first. And they didn't know how long it might last. It might last a million years. Who knows? But only after we have been sufficiently punished for our sins will Allah allow us into paradise. Now, that may come across as as strange to you and me, but it actually makes perfect sense from a moralistic perspective. Good gets rewarded, bad is punished, and there are no other categories. It's that simple. There's good and there's bad. There's reward and there's punishment. But can we all agree that nobody is more moral than God? No, but there's nobody holier and more righteous than God, right? And so if anybody held high moral standards, of course, it's the Lord. And yet, instead of dismissing the lost, God seeks them. 
That doesn't fit in the categories, does it? Instead of condemning us, he comes to rescue us. It's not simply good and bad, reward and punishment. Something else is going on here when Jesus speaks of the heart and the nature of God. Instead of us paying the penalty for our sins, God pays our penalty through the death of His own Son. Jesus bears the weight and the cost of our sin in our place. There is no paying off sin until we can earn our way in. That's not how the gospel of Jesus operates. He bears the cost. He pays the penalty and grants us forgiveness. Instead, he seeks the lost. He does not leave us to our own devices. And that brings us to this incredible conclusion. God values the lost. God seeks the lost. But look at this. God's joy in saving the lost. I tell you, Jesus says, there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. I'm guessing if we took a survey and we asked everybody, list out attributes of God. Just write them down. The attributes of God. What is God like? We'd get a lot of great answers. God is loving and good. God is holy and righteous. He's all-knowing, and so on. But how many of us would say, God is joyful? Would that be on your list of, of the character attributes of God? God is joyful? See, most of us don't, we don't really think of God that way. We think of God as very stately. He's statuesque. He's unmoved by the things that are going on down here. We don't think of God as smiling or laughing or feeling joy. But y'all, we've got to take Jesus at his word right here. There is genuine joy and celebration in heaven when a sinner repents. When a person turns from death to life, from unbelief to faith, from sin to Jesus, All of heaven rejoices. And y'all, that means that right now, right this very minute as we speak, there is rejoicing going on in heaven. Someone, somewhere, is trusting Christ. And God himself is declaring to the angels, Rejoice with me for one of mine who was lost has been found. One who is dead spiritually has been made alive. And y'all, we we see the difference. Uh, Remember what Luke told us back in verse 2. The Pharisees were grumbling over this whole scenario. What an appropriate word, grumbling. But Jesus says, heaven is rejoicing. What a contrast. There is no grumbling in heaven. (laughs) Y'all think about this. There are no cliques in heaven full of people who are pointing and staring at others and saying, what are they doing here? How did they get in? Nobody's doing that in heaven. Because everyone in heaven knows that without a doubt, all is grace. It is all of grace. None of us 
have deserved this. But God has lavished His mercy upon us. We were all lost and then found, rescued by a Savior who loves us. The Pharisees grumble while heaven rejoices. Because God values and seeks and delights to save the lost. And so, y'all, two quick conclusions as we close. Uh, And it depends on where you're sitting right now. It depends on where you find yourself. Some of us, perhaps, we fall into the category of the Pharisees, or at least more often than not. And, And remember what I said earlier, I don't ever like to think of myself as the bad guys. But y'all, for some of us, I know this is just the truth. We pride ourselves on being moral and right and good. We grumble when good things come to those that we don't think deserve it. There's a part of me, perhaps, that I don't love the idea of certain kinds of people getting into heaven because they have not lived the way I've lived. And y'all, we are, and if, that's, if there's any of that in your heart and in mine, then we are, in this case, we are like the 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. But you know, Jesus is not commending those 99. As if there really are people in the world who don't need to repent, who aren't sinful, who get in on their own merits. No, there, there is no such person. This is not a, condemna- a, con- a commendation. It's actually a condemnation. We do need repentance. We just don't think we do. We do require repentance deeply and urgently. We need to repent of trusting in ourselves rather than in Christ. We need to repent of judging the lost rather than loving them and seeking them as God does. If you, are, if you fall into that camp, even just a little bit, we need to turn to Jesus and trust Him for grace and rejoice in His mercy. We need to see ourselves as lost and then found. And let God root the pride out of us. And then lastly, secondly, a a word for us sinners. Remember, if if we're going to break the two groups down in terms of human categories, we've got the moral and we've got the immoral. We've got the good guys and the bad guys, verses 1 and 2. Well, listen, if you know you are a sinner... And we're going to talk much more about this next week. But listen, God values you. Not because of who you are or what you've done, good or bad. God values you because He is God, and that's how He is. That's His heart. And therefore, God seeks you, and He rejoices to save you. It does not matter what you've done. There is no way... You and I may feel that we have disqualified ourselves from God's love one too many times. And we, we, we raise up the flag and say, I, I'm, I'm out. I surrender. I can't possibly find my way in because I know what I've done and certainly God does too. But y'all, that's not how the good news goes. No. While we were yet sinners, while we were, while we were at our very worst, Christ died for us. And He rejoices to rescue us. So repent today, right now. I would call us to repent, to turn to Jesus in faith. To turn from sin and to Christ 
who forgives all sin and transforms the heart and makes us his disciples. Turn to him and receive freely what he came to give. And hear heaven rejoice. Heaven rejoices. Y'all, Jesus welcomes sinners. Jesus welcomes sinners. And so let none of us delay in coming to him. The invitation is open to the moral and the immoral, to the self-righteous and the unrighteous. Jesus welcomes all of us. Let's come to him today. Father, we ask this morning, I ask, that you would um, uh, reveal this great truth to our hearts, what we just read in Luke 15. Um, that you, you, don't, you don't live by our categories. That there's simply good and bad. There's deserving and undeserving. There's reward and there's punishment, and that's it. Um, but Lord, you do something entirely new and different. You bear our penalty. You take upon yourself our sin that you might rescue us, that you might give us life in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, a free gift granted by faith. So, Father, where we have this morning, um, where we are, some of us are, are, we, we just fall into more of that Pharisee category if we're willing to admit it. Uh, Father, we need to, to put our grumbling aside. We need to be um, renewed in who you really are and what you're really like. That we are not blessed and favored because we are good. That we have not and cannot earn our way to you. And we certainly have no right to look down on others who cannot measure up because we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we need to be justified as a free gift through the shed blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, will you um, pull out of us the pride and self-righteousness, Lord, that, that makes us grumble at grace? And Lord, will you show us the sweetness of grace and our deep need for you? And Lord, I pray, we pray for, for those of us who are maybe on the other side, more like the tax collectors and the sinners, that there's a, a deep attraction to Jesus, but also perhaps a hesitation. We know we don't deserve grace. We know we don't deserve to be in his presence. We know how, how the moralistic and maybe even the church-going people at times have spoken of us and viewed us and pushed us aside. And therefore, this, this message of grace may seem just too good to be true. Um, Father, overwhelm us with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That, Lord, you being rich in mercy, even though we were dead in our sins, you have made us alive together with Christ. And by grace we are saved through faith, and that is not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. It's not too good to be true. It is true that you would love us like you have. 
that you would value us, Lord, at our worst, that you would seek us at our least deserving, and that you would rejoice to save us. Because that's who you are. Father, let this be for us the the best possible news. There's nothing better coming down the line for us. You have done it all. Um, Lord, will will you give us grace this morning to receive the words of Jesus Christ, to trust Him, uh, to, uh, to rejoice in Him, that just as heaven rejoices, that we would be a rejoicing people, a joyful people, um, because we have been brought in, we have been welcomed in, we have been saved. And Lord, that our joy would be so full uh, that the world around us would see, that that there would be an intrigue, a desire to know, what what is it that makes uh, your disciples so glad, so so joyfully, uh, joyously urgent in sharing this good news with others? Lord, make it so for us. That just as you love the lost and seek the lost and rejoice in the lost being saved, Lord, that that so would we, we who have been found, Lord, that you would send us eagerly into the harvest for the sake of those who will hear you and receive you. Um, Father, let that be our joy as well. Hmm. Thank you that what we have in Christ is not dependent upon us but fully entirely dependent on Him and His love for us. Just as heaven rejoices now, Lord, make our rejoicing uh, loud and full and constant because of the life that we've been given by His grace. We ask it in, in Christ's wonderful and mighty and gracious name. Amen.